The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Part 3, The Path to Empowerment of the Australian People. Chapter 9, Processes for Engagement on and Adoption of the Australian People's Constitution. Part 1. The time has come for Australians to engage with the possibility of establishing and affirming their own rightful share of power in the Constitution. More than that, it is time to claim that rightful share before our democracy is weakened any further, particularly by corporate influence and loss of political and civil rights. However, the processes by which Australians might alter their constitution are fraught with obstructions. Some of these obstructions are legal in nature, but these can be overcome more easily than the obstructions that will arise from politics. On the face of it, Australians appear to be in control of their constitution, since they are the only ones who can confirm a change to it. Nevertheless, the fact remains that they are the last to get the opportunity to do that, because the constitution itself provides the basis for political obstruction. To achieve a constitutional change, enfranchised voters must exercise their obligation under Section 128 to vote in a referendum. But while Section 128 of the Constitution offers them a deciding role with one hand, it takes it back again with the other by interpolating a process by which Parliament must first come to a majority agreement on any proposal to be put to the people. As I have already mentioned, Geoffrey Sawyer once declared that, constitutionally speaking, Australia is the frozen continent, and since only eight referendum questions have succeeded since 1901, he would appear to have opined correctly. Robert Menzies, in his best patrician manner, laid the blame for this at the foot of the Australian people by remarking that to get an affirmative vote from the Australian people on a referendum proposal is one of the labours of Hercules. But it is much more likely that the fault for this long freeze lies with politicians themselves, who either fail to develop proposals which do something other than enhance their own power relative to the people, or fail to come to any agreement at all on proposals that should be put to the people. It is almost as if the minute a proposal comes forward, which looks like it might be something that would create a more inclusive and democratic Australia, the politicians themselves lose all concern for anything but their own overweening share of power. It is politicians, and not the people, who will hoard in their clans to scuttle inclusive reforms. And Section 128 aids and abets them in this obstruction. However, the Constitution does not prohibit Australians from developing other procedures for constitutional reform. It does not prohibit the formation of citizen-led revision processes. A proposal by a parliament for amendment need not be the sole starting place for change. Nor, as Helen Irving has pointed out, does Section 128 limit Australians to piecemeal amendments. It is only politicians that are doing that. As Irving has said, quote, The reality is, and has been for a good while, that Australians alone own their constitution. All of it. They wrote it. Section 128 permits them to alter it. Unquote. And Irving is not alone in this view. 
As far back as 1983, former Attorney General Gareth Evans and others stated that, quote, There is the possibility of simply making a fresh start with a brand new We the People constitution, one having no continuity with its predecessor and owing nothing to the ultimate and now defunct authority of the British Parliament. Although amounting to a legal revolution, this sort of thing has happened in too many countries around the world for it to be dismissed as wildly implausible. Unquote. At the same time, Evans et al. envisaged that a referendum could achieve what amounts to an instant severing of all constitutional ties with Britain by, quote, inserting into the Constitution new provisions which stated simply that UK laws ceased thereafter to apply in Australia and that sovereignty was vested in the Australian people. Unquote. So there it is. With referendums permissible under Section 128, we can even go so far as to vest sovereignty in the Australian people. Fundamental reforms are possible if the Australian public wishes, and quite feasible legally if politicians can bring themselves to get out of the way of the type of constitutional reforms that would be in the public interest as well as their own. As I have said, politicians would benefit in terms of their own conscience, their standing in the community, the legitimacy of their agendas and their potential for longevity in office if they were to champion a rebalancing of power in democracy that would arise from the introduction of a specified share of power for Australians in their own governance. They would benefit if they paid more than lip service to the Australian people as the true source of sovereignty. That said, it must be acknowledged that the likelihood that parliaments will come to agreement on a referendum proposal which might give electors the chance to consider whether they wish to specifically vest sovereignty in the Australian people is low. Many politicians find mere talk about a republic where sovereignty would transfer from the British monarch to the parliament or a head of state, not to the people, unsettling enough and so those who are more seriously discomforted by the thought of shuffling off the monarchical form of state would probably suffer apoplexy if asked to contemplate the possibility of the people being specifically acknowledged as the rightful source of sovereignty in Australia's democracy. But this does not mean that Australians themselves cannot initiate reform proposals along those lines. They can do that already under the Constitution, and have done so to some extent, for instance, by the formation of groups like the Australian Republican Movement, Citizens for Democratic Renewal, Hashtag Our Democracy, and the Australian Democracy Network. In other words, they can establish their own citizens' assembly to initiate constitutional reform, with or without the endorsement of Parliament, and can set out a wide program of reform, wider than, say, amendments to create a republic. In fact, in the case of a comprehensive program of constitutional reform, it is arguable that it would be better if they established such a forum without the endorsement of Parliament, inasmuch as the independence would lend credibility to the apolitical nature of its deliberations. Nevertheless, were a Parliament to willingly endorse an independent assembly of citizens to facilitate, that is, to lead themselves, in their own nationwide conversation on options for a constitution for a 21st century Australian sovereign people state, there is no reason why Australians should knock back the offer. 
It would be an unlikely offer, but it should nevertheless be welcomed as long as it does not politicise deliberations or expose them to corporate interference. Evans et al. envisaged that legislation could easily be established for this purpose, in that the Commonwealth has the power in that regard. The legal revolution, they cited, for a completely new constitution could apparently be realised by, quote, the Commonwealth legislating, with or without the consent of the states, to create a new constituent assembly, perhaps in the form of a people's convention, that would draft and then either ratify itself or put to a referendum to be ratified a new Australian constitution, unquote. But while this option is therefore legally feasible, it is also politically unlikely. And even if it were suddenly adopted as a political preference, a people's constitutional convention along the lines described above, that is, with power to ratify the terms of a new constitution without a referendum, would be entirely at odds with democracy. It would overturn the whole principle of section 128, which offers Australians the only power they have to define the parameters of law and policy, the power to have the last word on what shall and shall not be in their constitution. Constitutional change without a referendum would also be out of kilter with the whole concept of vesting sovereignty in the Australian people and would therefore be unsuitable as a means of legitimately facilitating a transition to a full democracy. If anything, it might risk reinvesting sovereignty in a quasi-monarchical state like America, a monarchy without a monarch. That would be a state which makes no place for the voice of the people and gives them no greater power as shapers of their own future. It underestimates the scope of such a project and the ongoing involvement that will be necessary for those who, if they succeed in establishing a people's constitution, will find themselves to be members of probably the first Western nation to be asked to take on both the power and the responsibility that comes with being a member of a full and sincerely inclusive democracy. Obviously, when Evans and Irving suggested the Constitution could be remade, they were thinking of a rather smaller concept of democracy and a narrower project of reform. Irving, for instance, assumed that the people are already sovereign inasmuch as the Constitution at least rests on a notion, albeit unspoken, that they are, and that this is evidenced by the fact that governments cannot be formed otherwise than by their consent. But this does nothing to lift our perceptions and understanding of what sovereignty means in a full democracy. It shows what sovereignty means in a constitutional monarchy, where once a government is elected, all control is lost by the electors. In a full democracy, however, sovereignty entails much more in terms of opportunity and responsibility for involvement on policy and the direction of the nation. It entails the exercise of a voice beyond a vote. This makes it vitally important at the outset of any 21st century constitutional reform for Australians to be given the space to understand what could be achieved by a democracy that rests on an inclusive people's sovereignty rather than on a monarchical form of government. Australians should be given a neutral space in which to consider what life might be like in a system of governance in which the legitimate form of sovereignty is acknowledged as the people and specifically the people acting in a form of state 
that is recognisable and understood as the many in the one, rather than the one over the many. In the 21st century, the whole concept of sovereignty has been undergoing a transformation. It has been shifting slowly but steadily from a supposition that sovereignty is something granted to a government in whatever form by the consent of a willingly submissive people to a proposition that it is something to be shared by people who can exercise self-determination in political equality. This shift is not yet widely discussed, much less recognised as the paradigm shift that it is, but it has been brewing in the growing calls for citizen collaboration on decision-making and, most importantly, has also been brought into clarity by the debates held internationally that resulted in the formation of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Since the Uluru Statement was released in 2017, Australia has moved into a position where it is occupying the centre of the stage on which the next major scene is being played out in the debate about what sovereignty has meant in the past and what it can come to mean in the future. Australia's First Nations have led the way by grappling not just with what sovereignty should mean, but also what it can do for them if a coexistence of sovereignties can be achieved. In effect, a coexistence of sovereignties, where the power of self-determination is considered to be the equal right of all, can save lives and help Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders walk in two worlds, as they must, if they are to survive with a level of well-being that offers recognition and dignity. As Professor Dominic O'Sullivan has observed, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, quote, helps societies to conceptualise what further capacities and powers shared sovereignty might entail and offers protections against the uncertainties of majoritarian democratic exclusion. Shared sovereignty is present when Indigenous values substantively influence public policy. Unquote. The Declaration has certainly helped Indigenous Australians conceptualise what shared power in public policy can offer them. But it can do just as much for non-Indigenous Australians, not so that they could walk in two worlds, of course, but because they would be able to accept in good conscience and with joy the fact that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture is a gift to their country. Not for nothing did Anthony Albanese celebrate the privilege that it is to live alongside the oldest continuing civilization in the world, as he did in his acceptance speech on winning office in the federal election of 2022. He said, quote, Together, we can be a self-reliant, resilient nation, confident in our values and in our place in the world. And together, we can embrace the Uluru Statement from the heart. We can answer its patient, gracious call for a voice enshrined in our constitution. Because all of us ought to be proud that amongst our great multicultural society, we count the oldest living continuous culture in the world. Unquote. But to capitalise on this gift, Australians will need space to come to understand it for what it is. The gift is a form of sovereignty that we may conceptualise as the opposite of the Hobbesian concept of sovereignty, in that 
its whole focus is on inclusive decision-making, but within a stable and efficient democratic process. In that new conceptualisation, it is not a radical overthrow of our current governance arrangements. It is not a displacement of representative democracy, nor is it disruptive or discontinuous with the form of state which has thus far empowered parliaments, governments and the judicature. Instead, it may be viewed simply as an augmentation of the sphere of power, achieving order by inclusion rather than exclusion. And it may be viewed as a significant increase in the efficiency of the processes of democracy. If viewed in this way, it might be apparent that the opportunity to create an inclusive, fully democratic governance system is likely to be more attractive to Australians in a referendum process than piecemeal amendments such as a republic that have not been integrated within a wider reform program that makes sense of them. The fact that Australians remain lukewarm about a republic more than two decades after they rejected the form proposed by the Howard government might be explained, although only in part, by the Australian Republican movement's assessment that it is the model of how a head of state should be selected that is the sticking point for Australians, rather than whether we should have an Australian head of state. The ARM has stated that, quote, Polling and research have consistently shown that more of us are for a republic than against it. But when voters are asked to support a general proposition about a republic, it achieves a bare majority. We know the model is the main variable, because when asked about specific proposals, support varies dramatically, varying between one-third and two-thirds in favour. 92% of Australians are open to the idea of a republic, with only 8% opposed to any form of change. Unquote. Staunch monarchists, of course, see no reason why we need to disavow the British monarch, and they will accordingly assert that there is no need to change anything about our colonial constitution. But it is likely that time and tide are against them. And if a way can be found to put the decision about who shall be appointed as Australia's head of state into the hands of Australians, this is likely to improve the chances of success in a referendum on a republic. That said, it would be wise to recognise that the idea of a republic has not yet excited Australians much, and it would be worth exploring why. Because it may not be that the model of how the head of state may be selected is the only problem. Why has the broader idea of an Australian republic fail to inspire people? One possible answer is that, in the forms offered so far, a republic has not offered them much more in terms of power and control than they already have. And for as long as it is framed as a project which is about selecting our own governor, it is not likely to be perceived as offering much beyond symbolism. In that form, it amounts to nothing more than an offer to replace a figurehead in the existing exclusive system of government with another figurehead in the existing exclusive system of government. Of course, this ignores the fact that the Australian Republican movement is actually proposing more than that by way of reforms, because it is suggesting amendments to scope down the power of the new head of state. And there is no denying that the symbolism itself would be very valuable to Australia, 
inasmuch as the change would enhance our capacity to project an image of Australia and its people as independent and self-reliant. For these purposes, a republic is an essential reform. But for those who are not up for the challenge of independence and self-reliance, and for those who will gain nothing in terms of inclusive power, something more will be needed to attract them to enthusiastic support for a republic. That something should be the prospect of more control over their own lives and a greater sense that they will have at least some power to help create a nation that they and their children will actually wish to identify with. A nation in which their unique life will have a meaning. A nation to which they will always wish to belong. The forms of a republic along any of the various lines proposed to date do not offer that sense. And if we wish to engender a greater enthusiasm for a republic and for the mature, self-reliant, independent state it implies, then the whole republican project needs to be contextualised as part of a reform designed not just to strengthen the existing system of power so that a governor-general cannot exceed or abuse her or his reasonable share of power, but also to establish a share of power for those who shall eventually be governed by whomever they elect to represent them. If a constitution could be established that allows Australians to attain a share of power sufficient to guide those they permit to govern, then that would give them a reason for greater enthusiasm about a republic, a reason to consider it less risky or less dull, and a reason to think that a project of national independence, like a fully democratic republic, would be worth the effort. It would give them a reason to hope that they would no longer be confined simply to having the first and last word on who shall govern them for good or ill, but would also be able to organise themselves to have the first and last word on what constitutes governing for the good. Obviously, what I am saying here is that if Australians are to be asked whether they wish their country to become a republic, and if government wants an answer in the affirmative, then the question should ideally be couched in a wider question of whether they wish to become a people's sovereign nation and whether within that they wish to accept a greater share of power than they currently have. In other words, they should be asked if they wish to become a full democracy. These are vital questions because there is no doubt that in determining whether they wish Australia to become a republic, Australians will look to the experience of other nations that have made the transition from a colony to an independent state and will not wish to repeat their mistakes. Most notably, they will look to America and its mistakes. They will sift through the strengths and weaknesses of the American system, especially because it is the most widely publicised and easily accessible system of democracy in the world, and it has been in place long enough for everyone to see which parts of it no longer work well for the purposes of a liberal democracy, and which, by contrast, have endured the test of time in terms of their capacity to protect the freedoms and liberty for which the whole project of American independence was fought in the first place. With America's experience of democracy being so openly played out, many Australians will recognise that a republic may offer them the chance to shuffle off colonialism, but they will naturally be shy of reforms which appear to do little more than make them jump out of the frying pan into the fire. 
For very good reasons, caution will be as evident in a referendum on a republic as it has been in every other referendum. To assume otherwise would be to mistake the Australian people as unthinking in such processes, when in fact they give serious thought to each of these choices, as their engagement in both voting and opinion polling shows. Politically disengaged they are not, when the issue at hand is actually about their prospects for the future, including the future of their democracy. Often this caution is mistaken for apathy, when it is more likely to be the result of a failure by political leaders to excite the people about what the reform offers them. If it offers them a greater and fairer share of power in their democracy, it is very likely to excite them. By contrast, if it offers nothing more than a centralisation of power, it is very likely to result in reactions ranging from boredom to deep suspicion. If politicians need any proof for this, they need only examine the tenor of referendum questions they have put to Australians since 1901 and the success rates they have achieved. Of the 44 referendums held in Australia, 13 were merely technical in nature, but 26 were little other than attempts to centralise power and only five could be classified as amendments offering the possibility of greater inclusion in the political system. Of the 26 that would centralise power, only two were approved by referendum. These two were the referendums in 1946 to extend to the Commonwealth power to provide social service benefits, and in 1967 to extend the power of the Commonwealth to make laws for Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders and count them in the census. In short, they proposed to centralise power, but for the purpose of increasing inclusion and well-being. They did not simply centralise it for its own sake. Australians could see the democratic value of these two amendments and unambiguously signed off on them. The failure of the other 24 questions strongly indicates that Australians are not enamoured of further centralisation of power. Of the five questions offering a more inclusive political system, only one, which enabled the ACT and Northern Territory electors to vote in referendums, was carried. None of the five were offered before 1974, and it is deeply regrettable that from the late 1980s onward, Australians appear to have become so disenchanted with their leaders that even when they are offered something that might improve their parity with those they elect, they have simply felt unable to trust the offer. Obviously, Australians are not likely to agree to constitutional changes with governments they don't trust. Trust is the first prerequisite to a constitutional change, and Australian governments have a long way to go before they establish a sufficient stock of it. These reactions from Australians in referendums strongly suggest that unless parliaments and governments can acknowledge the likely failure of piecemeal proposals which simply centralise power and or offer no benefit in terms of sharing power more democratically, and unless they can establish their credentials as trustworthy, they will continue their record of failure in referendums. On the other hand, if governments choose to inspire Australians with an agenda offering the prospect of an inclusive democracy, one in which their participation will not just be tokenistically welcomed, but practicably worthwhile, then they can significantly improve the prospect of success in referendums. This potential increase in the success rate 
would be likely to apply to any referendum question which offers the prospect of greater political equality. Questions that fit that description would include any that facilitate recognition of First Nations, statements of national values, agreements on human rights and obligations, and voices for all Australians. Questions about a republic may or may not fit well with an agenda for a full democracy. It would depend, as I have said, on whether they admit Australians into a fairer share of power. This suggests that if constitutional reform to strengthen Australia as a full democracy is to be a success, it is important to get the order of the questions right first. It will be important to scope a logical program of considerations for the establishment of a people's sovereign state. To consider this wider reform agenda about whether we want a we-the-people constitution, that is, whether we wish as a nation to become a full democracy where the people are sincerely acknowledged as sovereign, the community of Australia will need space. Such a wide-ranging reform, whether it comes before a referendum on a republic or after it, will require a machinery for well-informed community engagement that is open to all, is efficient and is comfortably distanced from political and corporate interference. In other words, Australians will need to be confident that such a process is independent and fully accessible and that the sequence of reforms is taking them along an orderly path to a place they want to go. Practical approaches to that sort of engagement are discussed in the next section. Chapter 9, Part 2 Practical Approaches to Community Engagement on a People's Constitution The most useful and essentially democratic mechanism in Australia's constitution for its alteration is the referendum. And this should be the means by which we continue to confirm all alterations. But with a people's constitution, we are not talking about piecemeal amendments. We are talking about a systematic review for which a logical and holistic program of review should be scoped before consultation begins and well before we reach the stage of referendums. Some options for organising that program include establishment of a constitutional commission, something that could be done by the federal government or parliament, or a community-driven people's constitutional convention not originated by the government or parliament, but also not sponsored through corporate donations. The former would benefit from the imprimatur of government. The latter would benefit from the distance it can maintain from governments. The former would benefit from an obviously secure source of funding, but suffer from the taint of political interference, whereas the latter would probably suffer from unreliable funding, but would benefit from the sense of its being a project the community owns. Bearing in mind that these benefits and disbenefits are pretty well evenly balanced. The least risk option is probably to seek a kind of hybrid model where the facilitation of national engagement is reliably funded, namely by the federal government, but independently chartered to organise and transparently report on the deliberations of independent citizens' assemblies, each of which can be charged with considering whatever reforms have been programmed for establishment of a people's constitution. This would suggest that a charter could be issued, perhaps by the Senate, 
to a group of suitably independent facilitators of a national collaborative process for design of a new constitution. This independent group could start the process by scoping what the project of constitutional reform can be about. In other words, priority items for consideration by the citizens' assemblies. An efficient way to do that would be for the group to develop an issues paper, which sets out the key factors in the Constitution that are affecting the capacity of Australians to use their democracy to its fullest potential to build the nation they want and to ensure their well-being and security in the future. This paper could also include examples of the benefits that may be obtained from a constitution designed by the people for the people. Benefits which include, but are not limited to, the chance to establish agreed national values, agreements on human rights and obligations, a voice for First Nations, a voice for all Australians and a collaborative mechanism for building a future together, a fairer distribution of powers, a safer system of decision-making on national security, an abandonment of racism and discrimination, an expression of what constitutes the permissible use of power in the public interest, that is, the terms of trust on which power is granted by the people to those they elect, and a social contract, which expresses what level of well-being and security electors and the elected alike have agreed to work towards together. From this sort of issues paper, it is likely to emerge that Australians have two main choices about the shape of their democracy. Those choices are fairly simple to isolate because the country is at a pivotal point in terms of which direction we might take to our democracy. We can choose to A, support the current form where sovereignty is handed to a government in elections without terms of trust or B, Seek a new form, where the people are openly acknowledged and participate as the source of sovereignty, and increase their role in democracy by describing the purposes for which power will be exercised by those they elect. In other words, we can choose to stick with a merely representative democracy, where people have no voice beyond voting, or we can add in a new participatory capacity, combining systems of a national voice and voting. This is a national conversation that must precede all others about reforms of the Constitution. And if, as a result of that conversation, there is discernible support for the second path, path B, then the next logical step would be to commence an Australia-wide round of conversations to build a people's constitution. The above-mentioned group of independent facilitators could then be charged with organising what we might call the National Collaborative Process for Development of the Australian People's Constitution. They could scope a program of conversations about reforms in a logical sequence. Chapter 9, Part 3. The National Collaborative Process for Development of the Australian People's Constitution. In determining the level of support for the second path, Path B, that might be necessary at the outset, we need not and should not restrict ourselves to a requirement for majority support. Were we to do that, we would simply be taking our democratic process back towards the limits imposed by the current Section 128 and back towards a system of exclusion. 
It would be to give up on strengthening democracy before we even start. It would cancel the process of democracy itself. In any case, given the number of groups and organisations that have been established since 1975 in attempts to strengthen democracy and curb abuses of power, it would be a surprise if there were no support at all for a process to explore options for a people's constitution or wholesale rejection of the idea as a waste of money. Support for exploring the option of a people's constitution is most likely to come from groups who have suffered from the exclusive power structures of the current constitution or who fear that they will suffer in the future if they do not find a way to exercise a greater share of power or political influence. But even if this initial conversation does not inspire the majority of Australians about the possibilities of an inclusive democracy, there is no reason in democracy to shelve the conversation. After all, the whole idea is to introduce some measure of protection for everyone from abuse and discrimination, and this is not a project that can be justifiably shirked by any government claiming to be democratic. In a democracy, majority support need only be required to confirm the final wording of that nation's constitution, not to start a debate about that form. As such, unless large numbers from all sectors of the community, male, female, LGBTIQ+, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, disabled, immigrant, employed, unemployed, carer, etc., put forward compelling reasons as to why such a conversation should not be had at all, we would be justified as a nation in insisting that the process proceed to the next stage. One other reason for establishing a national collaborative process for development of the Australian People's Constitution is that such a process has proved successful in the past. In the case of the Referendum Council, which was established by former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and Opposition Leader Bill Shorten in 2015, this council ran 13 regional dialogues to discuss options for constitutional reform for recognition of First Nations and was designed to ensure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander decision-making was at the heart of the process. The dialogues functioned openly and very efficiently and culminated in 2017 in the development of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, a statement which no doubt will prove to be a historic moment in Australia's transition from a colonial outpost to an internationally respected, inclusive democracy. Based on the Uluru Statement, the government established a co-design process for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, which in turn led to the announcement by the newly elected Labor government in 2022 of an intention to hold a referendum seeking the support of Australians. The Referendum Council's process for the regional dialogues and the co-design process can serve as a model for this much wider process of collaboration on the design of an Australian people's constitution. To sum up, Australia's constitution is not a barrier to development of a new constitution by the people for the people, nor do we lack examples of models which would assist Australians to efficiently collaborate on its design. We have the means and the know-how. It is to be hoped, therefore, that were the people to put it to their federal parliament that there is an opportunity for this sort of reform and that it would vastly benefit electors and the elected alike, this would be received positively by the parliament. Any government proposing referendums on a constitutional voice for First Nations and a republic should see that they can increase the chances of success in such referendums 
if they take up this sort of collaboration with Australians. We can stop the big freeze if we work together. We can be that self-reliant, resilient nation, confident in our values and in our place in the world that Anthony Albanese spoke of. We can start again and make Australia anything we want it to be. But if there is a will to do that, we will need to start soon. Chapter 9, Part 4, The Time for Constitutional Reform The time for constitutional reform is now. In fact, we're running a little late for the purpose, if lateness is defined by the point at which our time is running out. In the same way that time is running out for the peoples of the world on climate change, time is running out for democracies of the world on the rights and freedoms they must be able to access in law if they are to secure permission to keep their democracies and strengthen them. Australians in the 21st century have shifted from being able to take it for granted that our governments would accord us rights and freedoms in good faith to a position where such faith is no longer justified by the evidence. Too many rights and freedoms have been wound back, particularly rights to protest, and too much state secrecy has been permitted so that it now shields governments from exposure on the extent to which they have become beholden to unelected corporate power. It might be different if this corporate power, in its composition as a military, industrial, financial and resources sector complex, were not operating so wholly against the public interest and propelling the world to a level of exploitation, destruction and consumption that is far in excess of planetary capacity. But the excesses of multinational corporations are already well past the point of safety for humanity. It is possible that these corporate excesses may yet be wound back, and perhaps even wound back in time to avert some of the wars and higher degrees of global heating we might otherwise expect. But this will depend on whether governance systems can be developed which can control the destructive influence of these inhuman corporations. Governance systems which enable as many of us as possible to responsibly exercise power for the good of all will be the single most effective instrument we can devise to stem the massive human and environmental impacts of corporations. But the trend in the 21st century has been towards disempowerment. In that regard, we have lost quite a lot in terms of human rights. But we have not yet lost too much of one of the great privileges of living in a democracy – the privilege of taking responsibility for ourselves and participating actively in building a community in which each of us can safely attain an acceptable degree of well-being and a reasonable share of national prosperity. Freedom in that particular privilege is still available. That said, we need to get a move on before it too is gone. It is more than 25 years since one of Australia's most thoughtful leaders, Paul Keating, warned of the need to take more control in our democracy when on Remembrance Day 1996 he addressed the University of New South Wales and said, quote, After all, what does democracy mean if not the right, the privilege, the chance to take responsibility? And when you've got a democracy like we have, why settle for anything less than taking it? For remember this, if we lose momentum, 
if we drift or retreat, if we begin to let fear, ignorance or prejudice govern us, it won't be me or my generation who pays the greatest price. We'll drop off the back of the cart. It will be young Australians who will have to ride it into the 21st century. And just now, I reckon they should be seriously planning the means by which they can get hold of the reins. Unquote. Decades have passed, and it appears we did lose momentum. We did drift. But in that period, we can also observe the rise of very well-organised activist groups, community-based research groups, interlocking networks for community cohesion on particular issues, online communications instruments for connection and shared knowledge, and even the development of a means of planning a better future for a diverse nation, one in which they can get hold of the reins, as Keating might say. Many in his generation have since dropped off the back of the cart, but the young of Australia are actually better equipped than in the 1990s in the technical knowledge in science and the humanities that they can freely access and share, and in the means of forming connections with each other that are necessary to increase their impact on our increasingly secretive and exclusive governments. It is not too late for Australia's democracy, but it will be if the current generation does not seize every opportunity to reform it. A people's constitution is one of those opportunities not to be missed. So it is to be hoped that those members of the older generations who have not yet dropped off the back of the cart can join with young Australians and ensure their democracy is designed to enable them to take hold of the reins. <laughs>